0: Hello everyone. Welcome to the Ivy Academy podcast, where we discuss current topics in leadership and organizations, unpack the latest research in the field, and look at trends across different settings for insights to share with our audience. My name is Mazi Roz, and I'm the Director of Learning Design and Strategy at the Ivy Academy. Before we begin, I'd like to encourage everyone to reflect on the long-standing history that has brought you to reside on the land and the traditional territories of the indigenous peoples where you live, work, and Play. We invite you to seek to understand your place within that history. We at the Ivy Academy acknowledge the Anishinaabek, the Anishnabek, Lunenopec and other wandering peoples as the original caretakers and the storytellers of the land on which we are situated. We commit to honoring their past, present, and future. We also commit to working towards creating a just, vibrant, and inclusive community for everyone. This episode is about your organization's strategy toward a net zero future. We bring this to you in co-production by the Center for Building Sustainable Value and Ivy Business School. This is one of the few sessions we are dedicating to this important topic. I hope you make plans to attend to the whole series on the transition to a net zero climate emissions economy. As you can imagine, this is a vast, highly critical and fast evolving topic. Many businesses, small or large, in many sectors are making commitments to achieving net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050 or hopefully earlier. These commitments are being driven by a range of factors, including investor pressure, risks to assets. Evolving national policy frameworks and, of course, societal expectations. The urgency for action has accelerated with the dire warnings of the most recent IPCC report, as well as the dialogues coming out of COP26 in Glasgow. Business leaders must develop and invest in a credible path to net zero for the firm. This presents major challenges and opportunities, which can fundamentally transform a firm's business model. Firms must begin now to identify and capitalize on these opportunities. However, much of the work ahead is crowded with complexities of measurement, emerging technologies, and untested solutions. These would likely cloud strategic thinking on the net zero transition. In our live streams, we will begin to explore what all these means to businesses, to strategy, to innovation, and to the function of today's leaders. To set the stage for us, I will be soon asking Dr. Rob Klassen to share his thoughts and provide the necessary backdrop to these dialogues. Rob is a professor at IV and the director of Center for Building Sustainable Value. In addition to Rob, we're also joined by Laura Ciso and Sarah Chapman as our guests and panelists. Laura is the founder and CEO of Manifest Climate, and Dr. Sarah Chapman is the Global Chief Sustainability Officer at Manulife. As I mentioned, to get us started, um, I'm going to ask uh, my colleague and a professor of mine, uh, Dr. Rob Klassen, to help us get started. Rob, well, the Center for Building Sustainable Value is creating—it's actually pursuing research and advancing a research initiative on the strategic implications of net zero. So it would be great if you could help us set the stage for today's discussion. Uh,
1: thanks very much, Mazzi. Happy to do so, and and thank you very much for the invitation to join today's uh, panel. I think net zero as a conversation is has begun. I think uh, for many companies, but in in many respects, it still is is an ongoing process that's going to unfold over the next number of decades, and it's really this time frame that makes it such a difficult area to address at this point. It's very hard for managers to think that far, to be fair. But when we think about the range of impacts that business have on the climate and the way climate change sort of feeds into strategizing with organizations, I think it's important just to set some language here. First of all, if we sort of just think about carbon and carbon emissions, it's actually a little more complex than that and usually includes a a range of six, seven different uh, basic classes of gases. Uh, And for the most part, carbon dioxide is the one we focus on most. And so the others do have various factors, and some of them are actually quite potent uh, in terms of of amping up the greenhouse gas effect that we see going on now. Uh, With methane being significantly stronger than carbon dioxide, uh, we see less of it uh, entering the atmosphere. Now, if I bring the focus to your organization or organizations that you might work with, we usually think about climate impact happening at three different levels of scope here. The first really, being relative to your organization, direct activities that are going on within your firm. The second scope, now incorporating the sources of energy that you would use again within your direct operations. And then the third scope, which is the most difficult for many organizations, first of all, to assess, and then to start to plan around reductions is really the scope three. And you'll notice that it extends both upstream in your value chain, capturing uh, things around capital equipment, around supplier interactions, around movement of goods and services, and so on, getting to your organization. And then on the downstream side, we again have similar sorts of interactions with customers. What does the customer do with your product? How does the customer relate to your service? And even in the financial industry, there's also the implications in terms of the investment portfolio for different firms, whether it's equities or debt obligations, as well, ultimately playing through to what we consider scope three. So if we think about from an action-based perspective and how we might translate all of these different scopes into what a firm might consider for purposes of, of, I don't oversimplification, I, I grant that, but, but for purpose of conversation, I think it's, it's fair to sort of look at your scope one, what happens internally in your organization as being for many organizations, not all, but for many organizations, a bit more tactical in nature in the sense that it's something that you can understand in a very real way today. It's also something that you can plan around where you're going as an organization because you have a huge amount of control over that. As you start to move towards scope two and three, the complexity and the strategic nature of that also expands dramatically. And this is where rightfully many organizations are struggling with how best to move forward. And so it becomes a process of sort of unpacking this and starting to think strategically about beyond your boundary within your firm and often where you have very indirect control, what changes are needed, what changes might you make. Now, we also can look here at what are some of the key challenges that, that we have to sort through as we sort of work through this. Well, the first one that may have struck you as you sort of think through some of the implications of climate change and climate risk for your organization is that the natural gravitation is to look towards best practice. What works well and what should we then adopt in that sense? The challenge when we talk about climate change and carbon reduction is that this is very forward-looking. It's not as simple and as looking back at what other firms have done, identifying their best practice over the last two to three years and say, this is something we should adopt. And so whether it's from a research perspective or whether from a corporate strategizing perspective, we're really moving into a lot of unknowns here, a lot of uncertainty. In addition, the relationships that are required to change as we think about a net zero strategy also are much further reaching than many other business problems that we've dealt with in recent years. Uh, And so we think about sort of how that shapes our interactions with our customers, what we're doing in terms of working with suppliers. All of this is on the table when we talk about net zero. In addition, because it's such a long-term time frame, you hear the 2050, and some of you might be saying, this isn't going to affect me. Uh, I'll be retired by that point in time, and that might be fair, but the stage needs to be set at this point in time in terms of concrete action to move towards that long-term strategy. And the fourth major challenge, at least from my perspective, is thinking about how to leverage innovation. Clearly, there's some near-term improvements that can be made, particularly around scope one and tactical things to think about. But the more difficult area to really begin exploring and strategizing is what technologies and what gaps need to be filled in the intermediate to longer term. Is it your firm that's going to do that innovation? Are you looking to acquire that? Are you looking to seed entrepreneurs and look at the entrepreneurial landscape as a source of innovation in this space? All of that ultimately feeding to thinking through different business models as you sort through what your strategic options are. And so if we think about sort of the changes in the space here, we've begun a research project here at the Center for Building Sustainable Value looking at how we can start to transfer some of these broad sectoral approaches that you see out there being developed now. And all of those are are important to have in place or at least understandings around those in place. But managers then need to move to the next step. What's it mean for my firm? What's it mean for my customer base? What's it mean for my supply base? As I think through net zero, given the scope one, two, and three that I had on the initial slide. The other piece about this is really trying to understand and learn how to navigate this pathway forward. Where do you engage stakeholders in this? How do you pass the baton, so to speak, between what I'll term generations of managers, given that many managers will move up through organizational ranks, but they'll often transfer or move to different organizations, and you inherit goals and you pass on goals as you move through those particular different stages of your career. The last piece then is really about how do we explore different options? How do we sort of think through what it means for my business today and tomorrow. And much of the discussion, uh, and, I, and I, I understand why, but much of the discussion has been really focused on what are the risks? What if we don't do this? What happens if we move to a different uh, supplier? But what I would like to suggest, and I think our panelists will also speak to that, is that there's also opportunities in this area as well. It's not just about risk. In fact, this is where new business models can emerge and new growth opportunities can emerge as well. And likely even new industry forms will emerge too. So in essence, what we're trying to do now is focus on this last piece as part of this ongoing research project, where we're trying to understand what are some of the operational and market aspects that play into the risks. A lot of companies are focusing on this right now. And at the same time, how are we thinking longer term? How are we looking beyond the two, three, five-year time horizon to look at where the key opportunities are around maybe it's resource efficiency, because certainly you can reduce carbon footprint that way. Maybe it's around the energy sources, but just as importantly, opportunities to develop new markets through innovative products and services, identify new customers, bring them into your portfolio, and so on. And as we've noted over the uh, last year and a half with all the difficulties that many supply chains have experienced. These types of issues are going to continue forward in the context of carbon as well. And how exactly can you make your supply chain more resilient, given that there might be physical changes in the environment due to climate change and so on in in place as well? And ultimately trying to move forward towards reducing the carbon footprint and the financial impact of the risks and ultimately grabbing or moving forward and uh, achieving more on the opportunity side as well.
0: I very much appreciate that, Rob, and and thank you for not only setting the stage about what we're talking about, but also giving a sense of what your net zero research initiatives are about. And as you mentioned, this is just an ongoing research. So so these are great, excellent questions that you're raising, answers to which hopefully will show up as we go forward with further research with collaboration of many involved parties. Um, I want to bring Sarah into into the conversation. Sarah, from your perspective, someone who's in an industry, why is the transition to net zero such a strategic importance for firms across all sectors, not only those in the heavy polluting industries?
2: So a couple of, of things, you know, I, I think, and you, you know, this was set up well by, by Robert that there's both the risks and the opportunity side of climate change. For Manulife, we're both a life and health insurance company with also a P&C property and casualty reinsurance business, as well as a an asset management, you know, third party asset management side of the business with Manulife Investment Management. So for us, as we think about climate change and climate risk, there's the risk and opportunity side for our business. When you think about insurance, there is certainly the consideration of climate risk. And if you think about just of that, we talk about physical risks and transition risks. But if we think about the physical risks of climate, floods, wildfires, like these are these are considerations that we've been building into our you know, actuarial models um, for a long time in terms of considering what the impact of climate change will be from an insurance perspective on the asset management side of things. And we think about things like transition risks. So these industries that need to actually transition, things like utilities, oil and gas, et cetera, there is both risks that those, you know, those investments will, will um, not remain competitive, but also there's an opportunity side to climate change that's really, really important. And that's around the, the additional technologies that are going to be needed, the additional innovations that are sitting in labs right now that need investment that will be very compelling from a financial return perspective moving forward. Um, a very tangible example of this in terms of the opportunities is, is renewable energy. Manulife has been you know, investing in renewable energy for, for 20 years. And we've done that not because climate change was was the hot topic at Davos back then, but in fact, because it was just good business. Um, And there was, you know, there were strong returns there, you know, and and we are continually tracking, like, what are the additional, you know, opportunities that climate change, you know, in terms of how do we invest in the solution towards climate change? In terms of net zero, uh, and, and Manulife has made a commitment to transition our Portfolio to net zero by 2050. Frankly, what's far more important than net zero right now is the focus on actual emission reductions. And in some ways, I actually I always caution the discussion around net zero um, with the need to be focused on actual emission reductions too. And in some ways, I I worry about all of our, you know, net zero by 2050 discussions because you know it it certainly sets. The timeframe is so far out that none of us will be in the roles we are, you know, by the time that that comes. And, and what's far more important is those shorter term targets. And that's what, you know, the Science-Based Target Initiative is certainly advising companies around and guiding companies to be setting shorter term targets to actually decarbonize their portfolios um, in the immediate term. Um, so that's always my caution around net zero uh, and, and happy to dig in. But um, that's sort of setting the frame for,
0: for where we're going. Sarah, thank you. Um, I don't know about you, but I do plan to be here in this world in 2050, but hopefully not talking and advocacy about net zero. I hope by then we have um, significantly uh, overcome this challenge. So thank you very much for that. Um, Laura, both Sarah and Rob were talking about both the risks and opportunities that are present in this case. As one of the uh, leaders and innovators and advocates in this, in this industry, in this, in this practice, I should say, as you are leading Manifest Climate, what do you think about this? And What do you think about the opportunities that exist and how do you go about advising firms in, in uh, stepping on, in, into this journey?
3: Yeah, thanks for that. And that's one of the reasons I stopped practicing law because as a lawyer, it's all about the risk, right? And I realize like people are not asking the right questions about how we make... Transformational change. Like we are talking about transformational change. And one of my partners at the law firm said to me, like, that's not our business model. We wait for questions. And they didn't have the questions because they didn't have the information, because the professional service providers were not actually providing the information. And it was this like definition of insanity that we're talking about these targets and we're not actually doing anything. And I wanna point out like we're in the middle of COP26 right now. 26. That means there's been 26 years since we had the UNFCCC signed. And that said, we have to avoid catastrophic climate change. So the exact amount of time between now and 2050. And between 1992 and now, we have seen increasing global emissions. Something has to change. Like the way we've been doing it has not worked. So um, just to put that in perspective, right? In the early 90s, would we have been able to have this Zoom call? Like we went through the digital transformation. And many of us were not using emails. Many of us didn't have access to the internet. There wasn't HTML. So now we have 26 years later, we've had a transformation. We don't have to leave our house to do our work. We are in the middle of a transformation. Right. And so we're talking about that. So what we need to do, the opportunity is in every single discussion, every single decision, we put a climate lens on it. And that's what we have to do. There's no, you know, I love what you said, Sarah, about 20, like 2050. What's that mean? It means right now, this decision, how does that contribute to that? And so I think we need to reframe this and the opportunities are are significant. So and I've been working on this topic for my whole career and I said, you know what, we just need to inform decision makers with how to think about this. Right. So that's what Manifest Climate is doing. We're trying to help companies tell their climate story by understanding what's important. How do you embed this into the ethos of the organization so everyone feels like they can tell their story? The other thing I want to talk about is the opportunities around just thinking about it from a financial Risk perspective, so the TCFD, hopefully we'll get into more detail about this, but the Task Force for Climate-Related Financial Disclosure is asking you not just to report your metrics and targets, right? It's asking you to think about how you govern, what your strategic approach is, how you're integrating this into a risk management perspective. If we unlock the power of decision makers to understand what we're doing with this transformation, there's a huge opportunity to not only have a sustainable future, but one that thrives. So we talk about like the movement from sustainability discussions to viability discussions. Like you just aren't gonna survive unless you figure out a way to transform. So we're just kind of at the tip of the iceberg about all the opportunities that we have in front of us. And it's a really exciting time.
0: Laura, thank you. Uh, you mentioned that we've been at it for at least 26 years and something has to change. I get a sense that we're talking about what needs to change. Um, Rob mentioned that it's not just about the risk, it's risk and opportunities. Both Rob and Sarah pointed to uh, one thing that does need to change is the mindset about how to, how to approach this. And Rob mentioned, for instance, the time horizons, that we need to figure out a way of, of, of setting the strategies that are actually much more long-term and we need to start doing them now. In your experience with the companies with whom you interact and you, you consult. Um, where do you see some of the obstacles in terms of how in terms of companies coming on to this journey with you?
3: I, I think they just don't think it's their problem yet. Like Sarah, I think once, once you realize it's not just Sarah's problem, like it's everybody's problem, then you can understand the opportunities. And I think there's this like, we're in Canada, most of us, right? Like there's a little bit of a cognitive dissonance around like where our wealth comes from and where our wealth will come th- from and how we make that transition. The future is going to look A lot different than the past and just having like the imagination about what it could look like. We know what we need to do and we know we need to change And I often say it's like the person who says I'm going to quit smoking by 2050. (laughs) But I just just one more pack. Right. And like we know that that's not good for us yet. We still do it because we don't see a way out. We're addicted. So we have to think about like what is the thing I can do right now? that moves us in that dis- discussion. And it's not my sustainability team's problem. We have to understand how it's everyone's problem in their decision. So I think it's it's mostly just an educational component and an uh, empowerment of decision makers within an organization, but would love uh, Sarah and Rob's thought on that too. Yeah, uh,
0: let's go to Rob for a second and then I'll, 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 I'm going to flip the same story to, uh, to Sarah. Rob, uh, in your um, I understand that you mentioned that this is in the early stages of your research, but in your uh, discussion and, and research, um, can you point to any um logical reasoning why we may experience some barriers in in, in thinking about uh, this this um process in, in a combination of risk and opportunities and then the horizon and then a much bigger picture that you laid out for us.
1: Let me let me kind of point to just a couple of things. Um, and certainly, I 100% agree with Laura's comments about some of the the rationale and some of the reasons why we're, we're kind of uh, sometimes a bit frozen. Like the deer in the headlights, uh, and I think part of it is the definition of "is it my problem?" Um, and that still, unfortunately, is a bit of an ongoing debate for some. And part of the the rationale being, you know, I'm going to wait for public policy to sort this out. I'm going to wait for, uh, you know, 100% unanimity on the science. I'm going to wait for, wait for, wait for. And so I think this. Tendency, and it's human nature. I, I you know, I'm, I'm at fault as much as anyone else, but it's this tendency to wait for absolute certainty before we can act that I think is is actually a real barrier. And so uh it's that willingness not to make a step of faith, because I don't actually think you need to have faith to move this far or to move forward on this, but it's a willingness to embrace some of the uncertainty and ambiguity. And in the process of doing that, think creativity creativ- creatively creatively, sorry, with your team about what that would mean for our company. How would it look, if we could even cast forward 10 years and then bridge to something beyond that in terms of what it might might uh, do for us to move to a low-carbon type of operation, value chain, customer base, business model as we think forward. Um, the other point that I'll, I'll suggest is that the conflicting signals that that we sometimes see from public policy, from a variety of other environmental, and I don't mean natural environment, but business environmental factors, I think also sort of seed some of the tendency to kind of say, well, you know, should we just wait to acquire the perfect solution? Where is the silver bullet that we're looking for? And again, I think this is very much, you know, something that we're, we're sort of in the tyranny of the urgent. How do we solve today's supply chain problems, not how do we solve tomorrow is clear urgency around climate change. So I'll, I'll stop there. But I think there are there are real challenges that many organizations and managers face.
0: Thank you. Uh, Sarah, both Laura and Rob are, are suggesting that part of this conversation that's happening is at the state level, is at a policy level. It's, it's at a level that many organizations might just simply, businesses might just simply be waiting for the solutions to come from policies, the solutions to come from the state. In your experience, how do you help characterize the impact of of, uh, climate change and sustainability, um, even when we're talking about investments?
2: Yeah, so so from where I sit, um, uh, there's uh, certainly an acknowledgement that we can't wait for policy to come, you know, and and again, as a global organization, even just monitoring (laughs) Policies and, and and frankly, more importantly for us, the regulations coming in this space um, is a very sort of reactive uh, approach. And so, if you're if you're just waiting for those policies, you're actually missing out on the opportunities. Um, so that's my first point. The second point is um, we are setting our own you know things like an internal um, carbon budget, internal price on carbon, knowing that those things are coming. We need to sort of we need to start thinking about those now. Manualize given the nature of our business is an extremely long-term uh, framer in, in everything we do from an insurance perspective and an investment management perspective we're thinking about the long term and so um you know regardless of, of when some of these policies and, and regulations are coming we're, we're we're looking 30 40 50 years in the future and we know they'll be there you know that's 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 sort of our framing is is really that long term nature and and therefore not waiting for the policies. You know, I I would say that you know maybe a couple of years ago there was you know the reason that companies were kind of getting into this space and setting these targets was kind of looking around going everybody else is we should probably be doing this too. And I think we're at the financial services level like we're far past that. We're we're on that journey and and not just because others are, but actually realizing both the risks and the opportunities as it relates to climate um, and, and starting to see those like really tangibly come to come to
0: bear. I appreciate that very much. Sarah, a major focus of your work um, with companies is supporting their climate reporting and disclosure, uh, disclosure um, obligations to investors. How important are investors' perspective in driving some of these ambitions and and maybe changing the results that we see on the screen? You
2: know, so I'll I'll, I'll come back to the question in a second. One of the things I did just want to pick up on, what is carbon neutral? What is it really? to be net zero. And and I'm going to give a perspective, but there's probably competing perspectives, but I'll hope to be as general as I can and and maybe give some examples. So when we think about carbon neutrality, this means balancing the GHG emissions by offsetting or removing from the atmosphere an equivalent amount of carbon for the amount produced, right? So it's about that sort of balance. And you get there, you achieve that often by purchasing climate credits. So when people think about carbon neutral and a company's commitment to carbon neutral versus net zero or, or a statement that they're already carbon neutral, it is this balance and getting there by, by offsetting, by purchasing carbon credits um, or, you know, supporting things like renewable energy products. But a commitment to carbon neutrality doesn't necessarily require a commitment to reduce overall GHG emissions. So, a company can have a carbon neutral, can be carbon neutral, doesn't mean they're actually committed to reducing their emissions. Um, it just means that they're offsetting them. In my uh, personal point of view here, carbon ne- neutrality, frankly, is 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 not as admirable because it often is relying on offsets. Now, offsets are actually a really important thing, and we can talk about those. Um, but I want to then sort of try and explain the difference between net zero and carbon neutral. So if I take a simple example um, of, of air travel, so let's say there are people within a given business that take um, you know 20 flights a year. The organization can achieve carbon neutrality for those 20 flights by just buying carbon credits Oh, um, to offset those emissions. They are therefore carbon neutral. But net zero carbon, you know, a company would need to actually reduce the number of flights per year as much as possible, right? As much as possible. And then also be investing in those projects that remove from the atmosphere, the carbon dioxide that's produced by the emissions from those other, from those other flights. Um, so I don't, that's, that's, one way to explain the difference, but frankly, like this this whole concept of net zero and what does it really mean? And can we use offsets and is still something that we're all figuring out, um, which is comes back to my point about the importance of the actual emissions reductions conversation here versus just thinking about the balancing of net zero. But Laura would be very interested in in how you explain to clients. For
3: me, it's so frustrating. Like we get so, and I'm a lawyer, right, by training, but like you get so bogged down on these definitions. Did you do better than last year? (laughs) Like, did you make a decision that was better? I mean, I'm just so sick of all the targets and all of that when we don't see action now. So I think that is becoming very um, less credible to have ambition without like an action plan for what we're doing right now. Um, so I'm less concerned, like if we get to net zero, great, I'm going to be super happy. Let's talk about that, like 2040 to 2050, what the end result actually looks like. But right now it's like, are we just on that right trajectory? So I I, I don't really care about the difference between carbon neutrality and net zero, to be honest, I just want people to reduce their emissions. So if they're saying they're carbon neutral and there's no emissions reductions, like we're going to call them out on that, right? And we're going to say greenwashing alert. But um, as far as how we're explaining it to our clients, this is... So what happens? One of my one of my like uh, PR guys actually said, "How do you deal with your kids when they don't listen to you? Like you feel like it, the amount of frustration coming to you is palpable." So like let's talk about how do we actually you take away the privileges, right? And we are at the time right now where your privileges and your access to capital, and you're going to see this with like decision makers not funding things, your privileges and your access to capital. Will be reduced. Like if you if we don't start doing that, we're starting to see decision makers, we're starting to see capital markets moving. So the access to capital is a huge one, and there is a balance. It's not just the reduction; it's also the amount of capital going to solutions. You know, we know we're gonna have to try a lot of things, and we know we're gonna have to take risks, and we're gonna have to change the way that we think of something as investable. And things that are investable are going to be more investable, even if we don't have the traditional economic metrics, but there's a climate metric involved. So it's up to us to say how do we talk about those climate. Metrics to attract access to capital for the solutions. There's a huge opportunity in every sector.
0: Fascinating, Rob. I have a a question to you based on uh, the fact that you're a professor in a business school. Um, The Suggestions that Sarah and Laura are, are, are sharing with us in terms of uh, limitation to uh, reduction of emissions. Um, you mentioned at the beginning that this has uh, huge strategic implications. Specifically, it impacts the way that, that um, a firm thinks about its business models. Uh, in your research, and in in in, uh, in your position, from your position as a professor at a business school, how do you how do you help people disentangle this idea that uh, moving forward for uh, emission reduction requires a, a complete transformation of borrowing word, transformation of business models. Well, I think, I think this is part
1: of the the, the significant challenge that whether I, I, you know, in speaking with students in the classroom or MBA students or uh, MSc students or undergraduates, part of the challenge is uh, they can see potential. They can see the opportunity. And in fact, a number of them go into entrepreneurial ventures that explore how we can formulate new business models. But those also need to be really wrestled with at the most senior levels in Canadian and global corporations as well. How do we sort of think through what a new business model might be, and uh, I came across a recent example. It's a public example, so I can readily point people to it. With Nutrien trying to think through what a relationship with a customer might look like. In this case, a farmer, Nutrien obviously producing fertilizers. How might that look like in a new environment where I have to think strategically about this this broader business model? I'm not just selling a product into the marketplace. I'm actually now trying to rethink what it would look like, and it maybe in terms of facilitation with the farmer uh, carbon sequestration in the soil and so on so the whole range of different practices that once you open up the box and say well what would it look like if i actually see carbon as central to my strategy combined with obviously customer service and all of the traditional metrics that we think about, there's new opportunities that really emerge in that type of of, of environment. And trying to work through that, I think the the panel, uh, because I I just wanted to echo the observation about the diversity of, of where organizations are at, speaks to some of the uncertainty about how best to do this. And it really requires ongoing conversations like we're having today, but more importantly, within companies and within their value chains, not just the company itself, but all of the suppliers and customers they interact with, to think about what does the new business model, could it look like? Where do we need to focus most uh, quickly to make some action now, to set the stage for where we need to be? Thank you.
0: Anyone on the panel, uh, Laura Sarah, or Rob, um, have you encountered exa- good examples of how businesses might have um, approached their business model from a fr- from a fresh perspective and have reevaluated it based on the conversations we're having? Um, Laura,
3: I'll give an you- example that comes to mind. There's a lot of, of different ones, but um, we've seen some fossil fuel producers understand that there's a market for methane capture and said, "Let's just stop." doing the fossil fuel part and only do the methane capture part for other fossil fuel extracting companies. So, I mean, transition, you're still kind of like not, not the best example, but showing let's get out of the thing that we know is super risky and help those people who are still doing that do less bad. So, and, and they've totally got out and divested from um, coal in this case, and moved to methane capture. So that's starting to happen. We're seeing diversification across energy classes. Um, the one example in it that you, you, we use a lot is the difference of the market cap between GM and Tesla. So if you look at the difference in market cap, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but like one of them makes a lot more cars and one of them makes a lot more money. So it's like, but why is that? The market's sort of going crazy. There's like a different example of, and now GM is moving out of regular cars to fully electric vehicles and has a plan for that. And knows. So we can see sort of early leaders and then incumbents coming on and saying, we have to have a transformational change within our own stock and our own business models to kind of catch up to where the market's going, both from a regulatory threat, because we know that inevitable policy response coming. But if they wait until those laws are on the books, as Sarah said, it will be too late, right? They have to capture the market and understand to move uh, faster than the regulations probably will impose them to.
0: Sarah, do you have um, good examples that you can share with us uh, as you've seen organizations or businesses, they don't have to be large organizations like Tesla or GM, in, in changing or evaluating their business models?
2: Yeah, and I'll, I'll give, maybe this maybe as a business model, but at least mechanisms within an organization to actually be thinking about how you, how you achieve um, some of your targets on this. And, and you know, even within our own organization, as we set... You know, science based targets for our general account, which is our $411 billion of, of investments as a result of our insurance liabilities. Again, very long term. You know, as we set shorter term targets to 2035, 2030, 2025, in terms of the decarbonization pathway, there are things that we need to figure out. We need to figure out, okay, within, um, within, across certain sectors, where, where where are our investments actually going to decarbonize just naturally? Where you know we're investing in utilities and they're just going to naturally be there decarbonizing. So how do we sort of figure out what you know what the value of that decarbonization is. We then are also looking at okay, what are some low hanging fruit within the portfolio where we might have a holding that is overweight in terms of its carbon emissions intensity and and you know perhaps not performing from a financial return perspective. Do we is that low hanging fruit that we can just digest from? Um, and then and then we're left with the rest of the portfolio where it's like okay, we can assume that much decarbonization in the industry. We're going to take these low-hanging fruit, but what do we do with the rest? And implementing an internal either carbon budget or price on carbon is a way for our portfolio managers to evaluate a deal. So when they're looking at making an investment, how do they weigh the the balance of like, well, you know, here's here's a potential investment that maybe is a utility, but we believe they're gonna be on a trajectory versus you know an investment that's just, you know, that's renewable energy, that's that's carbon neutral the time and already. And and so setting an, an internal price on carbon or a carbon budget allows the portfolio managers to say. It um, to, to gives them a, t- a tangible mechanism to be able to make those trade-off decisions um, and, and work towards those targets in a, in a tangible way. Um, so it's not a business model per se, but it's a mechanism for, for the way that financial institutions can be thinking about how they shift their portfolio to net zero.
0: And that makes a lot of sense. And thank you to, to you both. We talked about a business model. We talked about mechanisms and practices. Um, and earlier, uh, we we did also mention about that businesses could also have opportunities. So it's not just about investments, but, but you can actually think about new opportunities. So, Rob, back to you about this. How, how can you imagine firms structuring their innovation approaches?
1: I think part of the challenge is that because we have such a diverse audience, the lens that you choose to look at, climate change, carbon reduction, net zero more narrowly, I think is different. If you're certainly in the financial services sector, it's about the types of investments you're making, about the risks you're taking, about how you're trying to move some of your portfolio in a more climate neutral direction. For many firms, and I look at much of this through an operations supply chain perspective, because that's my personal background, I start to think about what is a company doing? How much of the innovation to move towards net zero is supposed to happen internally versus how much do you want to lean on your suppliers or customers to enable that innovation? So for example, you know, if a consumer packaged goods company is trying to reduce their carbon footprint, actually they're own production may have very little carbon in and of itself. It's, in fact, their customers using hot water for shampooing and so on that ultimately may matter much more to our climate footprint than it does uh, just their internal operations. And so one of the questions that I think really has to be asked is, is if you look at your organization, to what degree are your investments in innovation, meaning internal or through acquisition or through customer interactions, is it actually focused on climate change? Is it something an add-on? Oh, well, maybe we'll get to that eventually. Or is it Central to what we're trying to think about uh, and move the business forward. And by doing that, you may not have the perfect solution in the short term. I, I, I think short term action absolutely is necessary because of the reduction points that, that Sarah raised earlier. But you also have to be seeding those innovations to happen longer term. And, and so I think this is where talking to a broader set of stakeholders can provide the input that enables some some thinking along those directions. And so tangibly, can we look at how much is invested with a climate tone to it, how much of it focuses on suppliers, how much of it focuses on customers, and how much of it focuses on internal operations?
0: So instead of uh, keeping it tangential or afterthought, how do we make it uh, central to our decision-making and central to all their innovation efforts?
3: Uh, just to add to that one of the things we always think about is like what do you actually do it's not keeping the lights on, right? So like, what does your business actually do? And when you think about like a lot of the early work was with banks thinking about like, how do we reduce the emissions coming from our branches? Like that's not what a bank actually does, right? Like has people in, in branches. So I think scope three is just trying to help us understand like how do we interact and like, what do we actually do? But I actually think if you think about it from, and I'm going to go up, talk about the TCFD framework here a little bit more, like what do we actually do? How do we understand that our business model is going to be part of the transformation? And we haven't touched on it in the last couple of minutes, just wanted to say the word scenario analysis, because as you said, innovation. And I think that is why there is that one recommendation in the TCFD for thinking about scenario analysis. It's asking us to stretch our thinking to what the world would look like if we stayed within two degrees, both from a transition and physical risk perspective. And how does your business fit in? And then once you've been stretched into that thinking, then you better strategize around it. So this is the way to unlock innovation within the organization. And then once you have an understanding of that, Who's in charge? So they ask you, how is the board keeping in top, on top of this? How is your management actually tracking? So it's not just about counting your scope one, two, and three emissions. It's thinking about how your business thrives through the transformation. And scope one, two, and three is just a guide to think about that
0: universe. I very much appreciate that, and and this whole idea of asking these questions, these, these very profound questions, Laura, that you're raising, they may appear as simplistic, but they are really critical, and and they are topic the questions that possibly we shouldn't rush into answering them right away and, and, and stay in, engaged and entangled that question in order to see the big system that we're suggesting uh, as, as a way forward. I want to ask Sarah one last question. Sarah, um, at the beginning, I mentioned that this is uh, one of the series of, of conversations we're going to be having about this highly critical, but also messy topic. Um, if we were to give advice to our audience members, um, and if the question that they're asking is that, uh, what can I do differently? Especially within my sphere of influence, what advice would you provide um, to our, our members of, of the audience? Uh,
2: great question, and and we talk about this in the broader context of ESG. Like, where do I begin, right? Um, and in the context of of climate and net zero, my my advice is. Identify where your most material or your most critical, significant impact is and focus there. Don't try to, you know, to tackle everything right now. Just start with like your most material emissions if if we're we're talking about operationally and and start there. Get a few wins under your belt. Get some confidence with management um, that this isn't such a scary place. Uh, and that, you know, and, and, especially where you can demonstrate, you know, the value add, um, start there, start small, but start meaningfully and, and then grow from there once you have confidence and, and really a better understanding as, you know, frankly, this whole space matures. Uh, but, but don't try and, you know, try and think that you'll understand it all or, or that you need to tackle every aspect of, of, uh,
0: of this space. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your wisdom with us. Thanks, everyone, here on on the panel for this uh, really uh, interesting and engaging uh, and thought-provoking conversation that we had. Thank you for tuning in and listening to this episode. We'd like to extend further thanks to our guests, Rob, Sarah, and Laura, for taking the time to share their insights and expertise with us. Currents in Leadership is produced by Melissa Welsh Sean Ackling Grant and Joanna Shepherd. Editing and audio mix by Carol Eugene Park. If you like this episode, make sure to subscribe to similar content in the future. This episode is the first of four in the IV Net Zero series, so keep an eye out for future discussions on climate action. If you want to learn more about Net Zero as it relates to Canadian businesses, we've provided resources and links in a blog post on our website. You can also visit ivacademy.com or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, or Instagram using the handle at ivyacademy to view our upcoming events, services, and programs. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to having you with us for the next episode.